Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello and welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. Today's episode is going to be the second half of my conversation with Professors Leticia Arroyo Abad and Noel Maurer. And in this half of the conversation, we discuss what they term persistence studies and their criticisms of them. So persistence studies, in their definition, are historical accounts that seek to explain present economic conditions by referring to events that happened long ago. And the idea would be, for example, that an earthquake that hit an area 500 years ago explains why one area is poorer than another than another adjacent area that wasn't hit by the same earthquake. Leticia and Noel are somewhat critical of those kinds of studies, or at least um, some of them, and we will discover those criticisms in the conversation together. Hello, Leticia. Hello. And hello, Noel. Greetings. Nice to have you here. Some people have argued that um, past events, like possibly the 1918 epidemic, explains to some extent what happened in 2020. What are your thoughts on that? We have many thoughts. <laughs> How much time do you have? Uh, I have a lot so, of time. Yeah. <laughs> so on one hand, we're just going to be historians and we say history matters. Mm-hmm. We do think uh, what you're referring to is a question of persistence. You know, how much that history matters. And we do know there's persistence everywhere. So it's not that we're just persistent deniers or something like that. It's just that when people argue that something that happens once upon a time uh, matters today, what we want is to actually know the story. And in relation to the Spanish flu and the COVID pandemic, there are some proliferation of papers that just tend to say in some way or another that what happened in 1918 actually just in some way is causal of what happened in 2020. So you have a great paper from Almond back in 2006, where he's tracking cohorts and essentially says, if you were in utero uh, during the Spanish flu pandemic, that cohort compared to people on either side of them was much more likely to be disabled by age 60, was much more likely to be incarcerated at some point during their lifetime, and was much less likely to graduate high school. And that's that's a persistent effect. That means this, this generation of, of people who are, who are turning 18 and entering the labor force in the late 1930s, that there's at least this one year effect that that, 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 that one age cohort, that one year age cohort is actually experiencing negative impacts from having been exposed to the, from having their mothers essentially having had Spanish flu that persists their, their entire life. You've got another another article uh, much later by Parman, which is also very well done econometrically, but is a little fuzzier because there's this question of kind of why are you seeing this, which seems to show that 
if the siblings of, of someone who was in utero during the Spanish flu, that his or her brothers and sisters get more education uh, than they otherwise would have. I think the idea being that you have a child who's affected by the Spanish flu, is therefore performing less well in school. And so therefore the parents kind of, I, I don't know a way to phrase this nicely, partially write that child off and redirect resources to their older siblings. Uh, not to their younger ones, interesting, but only to their older older siblings. And that's also persistent. That by the 1930s or 40s, you're seeing this effect, not just in the person who was affected, but in their, their older siblings doing better than they otherwise would have. This is all extremely plausible, right? You're tracking individuals. Yeah. You, you've got effects that 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 aren't going over a century. Um, but, but then, but then, then you have other papers that um, come at one of um, kind of mortal sins about persistence uh, that they don't track individuals, and unfortunately, people kind of move. Uh, so they're not locked down in place forever. Um, in some places, actually, in the world, they are. But in this case, in the US, uh, they're not. So there is one particular paper that looks at um, 46 cities in the US and uh, looks at the 1918 uh, pandemic and makes some causal claim that cities that performed worse in 1918 in terms of uh, Spanish flu deaths actually just performed worse in 2020 uh, in terms of COVID deaths. They claim this is causal this is because causal. They, have, they have a good instrument, distance to a military camp or the flu outbreaks. A military camp in 1918 as an instrument for flu deaths in 1918. Distance to a military camp in 1918 should not explain uh, how well a, a city performed during the COVID epidemic of 2020. So they claim they've got causality. The problem, I mean, besides the fact they only have 46 cities, which is like barely enough to make strong or any claims. Well, it depends how many controls you have, right? Limit the number of controls you can put yeah. in. Um, yeah. um, it's, it becomes impossible to imagine what the mechanism is other than omitted variable bias right. um, that could explain this, in part because they're using central cities. And in the United States, white flight means that in most central cities, with a few very limited exceptions, almost nobody there is descended from people who were there in 1920. I mean, I'm the weird fourth generation Brooklynite. I think you actually track down the addresses of you know, Abraham who begat Moses, who begat Leon, who begat me. Um, we went from Ellis Island all the way. <laughs> yes, yes, and hopefully a fifth generation of Brooklynites. But but this is weird. This is like really weird. This is really strange. I mean, like you know, old Most people move. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> so what's the? What, I mean, what's the? What's a public health department in 1920 is? Political machines collapse. Well, it's There's like, institutional changes. It's and like, if you just look, you know, if you just do the now the 46 cities, but just think about like, you know, main cities, like New York City went bankrupt in 1970, right? It's like, so, and then the state intervened. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, that's why we have all these fights between the governor and the mayor. Uh, so 
that if you think that the hypothesis like, you know, the public health system has something to do in a particular city, you have many cities that many the big cities went bankrupt, right? Cleveland also, but Detroit. Detroit. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> uh, so in that sense that how I, once again, it's not that we don't want to believe in persistence. We are not persistence deniers. Is that please tell us the story, tell us what happened in between so that we can actually track down like how all these factors are connected over time. The other one is, is Leticia selling herself short because when she saw this paper, she decided to say, well, if this holds for cities, we do have data for 3000 counties across the United States. We can compare 1918 mm -hmm. and 2020 at the county level, and there's there's nothing. Yeah, we found nothing. There's no correlation. Just, so you have this correlation among center cities um, that's there, but it's just it's it's so hard to explain that the result becomes kind of unbelievable. And this mm. is with a lot of persistence papers where the the mechanism isn't really a mechanism. Yeah, so we we actually also wrote a paper, a video paper about persistent literature, which um, made use of one of uh, my favorite phrases uh, in, by Eduardo Galeano. Eduardo Galeano is, um, is a very famous author uh, that, that wrote The Open Veins of Latin America. Uh, and uh, he said, history never says goodbye. History said, see you later. And uh, this paper that just came out early July, we actually just look at, looked at the persistent literature and just tried to learn from it and trying to learn how to do it better. So we just started like classifying the, one of the most prominent uh, persistent papers to figure out you know, what they're trying to say and how. And we basically just wrote very long paper, but you should read it in its entirety okay? and cite it a lot. Um, of course. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so, um, where well, we just try to figure out what they're trying to do and how they do it, and whether those results do hold after a little much more scrutiny. Um, so, we found um, some kind of cardinal and moral sins uh, that some of those papers uh, have committed over time. So which one should we start first? Maybe, uh, what are some of the canonical examples of the kind of um, research designs that you're talking about? So the, the basic structure of a persistence paper is like, something happened a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Hey, look at today. It still matters and it's like it's causal. Right. So something really bad, generally it's really bad things. You know? <laughs> so there's some there's some kind of happy stories, uh, but most of them are bad stories. Really, really, really bad shock. Uh, colonization, uh, persecution, war, pandemics. War, pandemics, yes. Uh, very, very just like cheery topics too. Um, forced labor. Forced labor. Yeah, so there's a lot of really um horrible stories in persistent literature. So once upon a time, something really bad happened. And today in those places, bad things keep on happening. Right. So that is kind of like in like in layman's terms, uh, how this um how the structure works for a persistent paper. And right. then it 
try to make it, you know, connect the dots, like from the past to today, uh, by some kind of mechanism at best. Uh, the best papers do test those mechanisms to say like what are the factors that over time uh, can explain that we observe this persistence. What is an example of um, a particularly good persistence uh, paper of that kind? Come on, go for it. Okay, um, this is a paper I was prepared to hate. Um, <laughs> like I, I, I just did not want to believe it, and I was annoyed about it. Um, it but, was very grumpy. Right. <laughs> um, so it's by Bazi and Fishbone is the fellows. How you pronounce his name? And it's on the the persistence of frontier culture in the United States. This this idea that the the frontier of settlement that is to say is you could you could you could look as 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 areas where the population density of white farmers dropped below a certain a certain threshold that the longer a county the more decades because they're measuring this in terms of decades was at the frontier was sort of in that in that threshold behind the between the population density of settled agricultural count, uh, counties and uh, and uh, and a very low population density. Again, population density of white settlers. That, that caused the emergence of certain cultural traits and that those cultural traits persisted later, regardless of how the economic or social structure of those counties actually changed. And this was a, a paper that um, was not, not one that I was kind of completely prepared to, to believe. But they do a, a very solid job. First, they track down mechanisms by paying a lot of attention in particular to migration and they control for migration. So there are a lot of frontier counties or counties that were on the frontier for a long time that don't exhibit the cultural traits that they would attribute to, but this is because they no longer have populations descended from the people who were settling there when that was a frontier county. So they're, they, they really, and the nice thing about the US census is you can, you can track this, they, they are very much concerned with migration. They're also concerned with whether or not they're simply capturing a Scott-Irish effect. Is this just essentially the culture of one of the first immigrant groups to the US settle in these areas uh, from the Scottish-Irish borderlands? And that maybe they're just tracking them over time. Um, they have a very nice measure of individuality, which I like. It tracks onto others, but which is sort of what is your likelihood of giving your children a, a strange first name, which was a is kind of a nice, a nice, a nice measure that turns out to be very constant over time and is measured relative to the rest of the society because. The indice or the, the the frequency of weird first names varies over time. American culture is not static. It's relatively mm. common in 2020. It was relatively common in the late 19th century. It's very uncommon in the 1950s. Um, but they they're adjusting for that. So they have they have this cultural persistence mechanism. They are, are tracking it very carefully. They look at political outcomes like property taxation at the local level. Um, and then they they have again a good explanation that you you would expect that when parties sort ideologically you would then expect this frontier culture to show up in partisan voting 
um, and you, you don't because the parties aren't ideological in that sense until the 1990s. But then once they start moving in that direction, you see this, this fairy trade emerge. So again, I don't like this result. And so I'm still intending to devote like a lot of time to figuring out where their mistake is. But it's actually a really, it's a really well done persistence paper that, 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 that being on the frontier of settlement in the United States produced cultural traits. I'll admit they, they often use non-neutral language. I think because they're not Americans, they're, they're like afraid to say bad things about the cultural traits they're talking about. But um, if you're um, American, you should be prepared to, to use stronger language, so. This actually is uh this is this is parenthetical, but since this is for grad students, I, I once had a whole bunch of lesson plans worked up that uh, professional colleagues of mine said that you know, Noel, you're the you're the only person here in this department who can possibly deliver this. You're a white male with a New York accent who is in the U.S. Army. Nobody's going to deny your patriotism. You can go around and like talk terrible stuff about the Constitution and the Founding Fathers and the Constitutional Convention, all of which is true. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't do that. It's not going to fly with the students. Anyway, I want them to be wrong, but they did a really, really, really good job showing it. I think you, you, you probably have an example of a persistence paper that's also pretty good and pretty well done. Well, it's hard, right? <laughs> Um, mostly we criticize the persistent literature, and I think that um, um, there are papers that have been done right, but there are papers that um, I'm just going to, he went all like, you know, author and stuff, I'm going to a negative, you know, remember, I'm Argentinian, so um, it's hard to be optimistic about the future. I had two um, other positive ones that I'll jump in after, because I got Oh, he's the popular one. He's the optimistic. It's like, let's do this. Like, no, we can't. <laughs> that, that's, that's the story of our collaboration. Like, we're going to do all this stuff. It's like, there's no data for that. No, that's, no. Uh, <laughs> are you going to go there? Uh, that's, that's the next one. Uh, so, so I, I think that, as we said earlier on, we're economic historians and we really care about history. So, I think that. We get very frustrated when economists, uh, political scientists, sociologists, you name them, uh, that do quantitative work. They just try to fit history in some kind of model that uh, is convenient or it just makes sense uh, in some way or another. So is kind of the cultural case study that doesn't quite fit, but maybe if I just put like some parts of these sources, then it does fit. And that is doing violence to history, you know, in my opinion. So, um, so there are many cases where we just know about, um, you know, for example, we are specialists in Latin America. So there's some papers that do persistence in Latin America. We know the history pretty well. Is that no, that that is kind of misogynist at best. Mm. Um, but let's say that I'm not a specialist in a particular region. You can actually do your homework and you can actually just like learn whether the sources that you use are good or not. I'm not an Africanist. I have no idea, right? Uh, if I had to do African economic history, I would have to start from scratch. So what do you do? Because grad students are maybe listening to this, like what do you do? How do you know if your sources are good or not? You know, it's not that hard. Just look at the reviews of those sources uh, to see what 
you know, people that actually understand a lot about those words, about those fields, what they say about this particular source. And there's some sources that are really condemned by many, many specialists in the area. So I think that we need to be much more, maybe held responsible on the sources that we use and how we use them. So we have to be very critical of the sources that we use. I know it's history, it really is really hard to come up with a data set. Every time we give um, a seminar with people that are non-historians or, you know, they say, why didn't you control for X? And so my our favorite line is like, yeah, I'll go to downloadmydata.com and I'll mm-hmm. get it, right? Uh, I know it's really hard, but, you know, you chose that topic. I didn't choose it for you. So if you chose that topic, you should do a better job, you know, just trying to figure out whether your source is actually just like good for what you're trying to estimate. Because at the end of the day, all these studies, all the persistent studies are quantitative in nature. These are non-narrative studies, right? And in mm-hmm. order to have, you know, a quantitative impact, a very precise estimate, your estimate is as good as your data. And if your data are not really just mismeasuring or just mischaracterizing, they're just mischaracterizations of agricultural systems, of like money, of all sorts of things. If your sources are really bad, then garbage in, garbage out. (laughs) I mean, there's there are some other papers that that do a good job, but what they all do have in common are they pay a lot of careful attention to sources. They work out mechanisms that both make sense and they really engage the historical literature to show that those mechanisms operated. Because a lot of mechanisms are either a theoretical projection, a prediction that's then conflated as a mechanism. A theory says that this mechanism should also. Um, sometimes they're just hypotheses about institutions that may or may not have existed. Um, and and, and other, another times, and this is the worst one, is there are actually just alternative outcome measures that are then called a mechanism when they're, they're not a mechanism, they're, they're also an outcome measure. And the, and, the, and the other one is to avoid what's called the compression of history and to just do one of two things, either show that your effect holds for intermediate periods, and if not, have a detailed explanation as to why not, why would this effect only emerge in this historical period and be submerged for so long? There is a a really fun paper on that that shows that uh, villages today that were under Turkish occupation in the medieval periods in Austria show much higher levels of anti-Muslim sentiment than those mm-hmm. thought. But what's really fun about this paper is first it says, well, Islam is not an issue in Austria until you get a lot of migration to Austria from Islamic countries. That's number one. They have a plausible way why this attitude might have stayed submerged right. for centuries. And then the second one, and this is my favorite, they show that in these villages, you've gotten the Memory of the Turkish invasion everywhere. Street names, the seals, the town seals on these villages, commemorations of the fight against the Turks in some kind of civic 
holiday where school children are learning about it. And then like a town over that wasn't under Turkish occupation, you only learn about it briefly in your history books about, you know, siege of Vienna and all that, and then you're done. Um, and so they have a nice mechanism to say, look, I can show you this mechanism operated. I can show you that in, in this town, the historical memory of the, the evil Turks is alive. And in this town, it's not. And, and that's why I think this persistence makes sense. And so I, I think at some point in the future, when Scandinavia and Austria start going at it, I want proof that that towns that were occupied by Swedish troops during the 30-year war are going to react more angrily to the Scandinavians than towns which are not, or uh, maybe even a World Cup match we should look at. It right? depends on how testable stuff like that, textbooks, you know, for children. Or if they've just, yeah. or if yeah. just forgotten yeah. about the, the Swedes. Yeah. Exactly. The Swedes, those Swedes, they, they were like, they were me. They were really me. But this is an especially great paper that you mentioned in, in your review paper, right? Because, I mean, I know a little bit about the uh, literature on populism in Europe, as well as on far-right parties in particular. And this is something that I've never come across before. So, like, usually explanations um, of, you know, how come populist far-right parties especially have been so successful in the last 10 years, you know, center around arguments like... Um, economic variables like unemployment or things like that or it's some sort of cultural change or um, maybe people say like oh yeah well it's somehow connected to the increase in immigration but this is exactly I think what history really can uh, bring to the table right there's like very deep understanding of um, the past of people that varies across different areas in Austria, right? And some people have this like very, uh, yeah, vivid uh, memory that is sort of like being um, kept alive through generations that makes them react quite differently than other people. So how can more studies do exactly that? Maybe it's not necessarily persistent studies, but how can you use history uh, successfully to inform uh, people about what is going on currently? Well, I, I think that... So, uh, but I think that is one of the problems that we've seen in the last 10, 15 years is that these persistent studies are just kind of so fashionable mm. uh, that uh, it seems that all the things worth studying have to be persistent, right? When uh, my friends in the history department, they have courses, or they used to have courses of persistence and change. So apparently the change doesn't matter anymore uh, because if a shock happens and you see the no effect, right, then um, you cannot publish that. So there mm. is, I think that there is the publish or perish kind of curse that we're uh, uh, subject ourselves to uh, is actually just changing the direction of research in ways that are not really my opinion, just conducive to us learning more about other things that apparently do not have effect or not the effect that we expected, or just like, you know, just confirming things that we knew already. I mean, there's, there's a slight problem of fadism here. So this is to, to, to tell some of our own, our own work, I, I guess we can, we can do that. Um, the United States is about to withdraw from Afghanistan. After 20 years there, and I suspect you're not going to find much persistent effect from this occupation. Historians in the 22nd century are not going to find that it had a big persistent effect in Afghanistan. Certainly doesn't seem to have one looking at it right now. We have a paper um, that 
looks at American occupations and takeovers of government institutions in, in Latin America in the early 20th century and finds also not only no effect afterwards, but no effect while the Americans were in place and tries to come up with mechanisms about why. And 15 years ago, this kind of result would have been very interesting. Here's, a, here's, here's an intervention that in theory should have worked, put foreigners in charge of the governing mechanisms of a country that has, has, has uh, problems controlling its own officials. Um, and you find out that it didn't, and then you have an explanation as to why. Um, on the other hand, now these papers, one, one of the most striking things about it was someone actually in a seminar saying, oh, oh, if you found persistence, that would have been interesting. But that, you know, the United States can invade, <laughs> take over a country, <laughs> and then leave, leaving the country like exactly where it started. And in fact, accomplishing nothing while they're there even. Um, but that's like, that's not interesting. And, um, and this, this is sort of a, a weird, a weird, you know, a weird, a weird result. And similarly, some of these persistence results have become so canonical that suggestions that they might not have the whole story um, are also not. Well, it's just, it seems that people get territorial about it. Mm. <laughs> Uh, so if you just wrote about country X and this is your finding, that, so anybody that just contradicts what you said or just has better data, uh, then just is going to have a hell of a time just trying to, quote unquote, advance science. You know, so there's a there's some kind of philosophical point that we can make, right? So uh, we can be like you know Popperians, so we think that hypothesis like you know just like the size could be falsified and so that is how we get closer to the truth right and but in order to do that you have to allow people to publish if they say something that contradicts you know that's supposedly like the, the current knowledge uh, of a particular field so so this whole idea of having a very novel um result that can be falsified in the future but having you know guards at the gate, uh, it's just actually just in some way makes this whole thing about us doing uh, research less fun. Because <laughs> it seems that if you don't have the, the story that confirms, and if it confirms, then it's not, it's not, it's not new. So right. just, you know, just don't publish. I mean, if you just contradict it, then you're going to have a really hard time uh, publishing it. You, you can have a paper that did everything right. Yeah. didn't fall into any of these pitfalls, um, except possibly the data one. But even there, that that happens. People come back with better data and they find out that your, your story is incorrect or you, you're using a regression discontinuity design and you later someone discovers that the frontier is not where you thought it was right. cut off from your treatment. And all of those things, those, those are okay. Um, and what is wrong if like something persists for a little bit and then it fades? Like, what is wrong with that story? Mm. Actually, I find it fascinating how the his societies, like regions, overcome a really bad shock, right? Or so I think that there is so much richness to exploit when something happens and it just has an effect and then it fades over time. How did how, how did it happen? You know and. 
I find it fascinating. I also just, as I, I say to my students, it's like it justifies my employment because I do economic history. I put history in the middle, doesn't matter. So what am I doing here? Right. But beyond, beyond my, you know, kind of like selfish, you know, preferences, I do think there is a lot of richness to understand how institutional change and persistence, how they happen. And the the current line of research that is very successful, it seems that if you don't are on the persistence, you know, boat, then uh, then you just you're out, right? Mm. And I'm not saying that in every single journal it happens, uh, but there has been this trend where these persistence studies are just like what people are. It's like it's, it's you know we're looking for. I mean, a lot of the best persistence studies often are ones that are date or early on, right? So, so uh, Samitra Jha's paper on medieval trading cities in India at tolerance later on, it's a great paper. It's from 2013, but he finds the effect attenuated over time. He doesn't try to push this through to modern India. He, he finds, you know, by the late 19th century, this effect is fading, but he does a lot. He, he pins down the institutions that encouraged intergroup cooperation. He explains their origins. He's really concerned with misogyny. Um, he he does a great job of showing that the effects of these cities persisted for centuries after they were abolished, even if you're not really going to find those effects in 2013. That's a great story. And we've seen also papers that initially were packaged as like fading persistence or something like that. And then it was just rewritten to say, hey, there was persistence during this period of time. And then afterwards, uh, we just wave our hands because, you know, you repackage it so you can sell it better. Uh, and I don't, I don't fault people for doing that uh, because that is what sells, right? right. But as, as a discipline, you know, we have to ask ourselves, are we just doing this to sell? Are we doing this because we want to know what happened? So, and it's hard because some people need to get tenure, need to get jobs, right? Uh, so, um, sure, not supposed to talk about that. <laughs> sorry, just edit that out. Yeah, uh, I so, so I, I do understand that incentives are um, a player in the in the way they are, but um, it's up to us also to do things differently. Well, great. Um, There's some papers which are egregiously bad. And yeah, but they, we don't want to. Yeah. You don't want to blast they, they, People can click and just read them. They tend to be the very long run persistence papers, yeah. too. Yeah. Which are the, but yeah. I prefer to do that because they're going to be referees of my papers. <laughs> so one thing is, again, as a, as a general rule, the, the longer or the bigger the gap that you're trying to explain, the higher your standards of evidence need to be. So if you're if you're going to make claims about civilization, yeah, the Neolithic period predicts future future results. You 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 need to be extraordinarily um, careful in 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 how you find how you define your variables, where your data is coming from. How you how you explain what what mechanisms you use to explain, and as a general rule, I would I wish there were a way institutionally to get historians more involved, even if it's just establishing a norm 
where you have historians referee the historical portions of papers, hmm. um, where, you, where you require a section where, where mechanisms and the historical evidence that they operated is laid, is laid out. Because many papers do that and take that very seriously, and many papers do not. A historical appendix is also, I think, worthwhile because usually you have too much historical detail to write in a short monograph. But the referees need to charge the history as, as well as how you handle the, the data you got. P political science, I think, has done so far a slightly better job than economics. I say so far. You published no results. Because persistence yeah. right is coming, is, is only starting now to, to get to get one. One is a greater, a greater willingness to publish non-results, mm -hmm. a greater willingness to look at limited time frames, and a greater willingness to publish papers that show results that the result isn't surprising, but we've now demonstrated the mechanism. So mm. I hate it when I'm not sure how to pronounce an author's name. So so Sen, but co-authors Acharya at all, um, they did a very good job um, showing that slavery has had persistent and causal effects on the strength of state institutions and on the willingness to make public investment in the United States. This is not a shocking mm. result to anyone. If it is, you knew nothing about the United States and it never crossed the Mason-Dixon line. But it's great work that's really advanced our knowledge of the United States and why and how slavery had such a pernicious long-term effect on political development in, in parts of the US. Um, there's work being done now also on persistence in, in political science where authors essentially have been tracing out what happened during reconstruction and showing that you have during Reconstruction, you do not have these bad political effects. And it's only afterwards, as African-Americans get disenfranchised, that they emerge. Um, and, and that's also, I think, again, it shouldn't shock anybody, but it's a great result that really advances our knowledge of what, what happened in the past and how the past is affecting the present. Well, Leticia, Abad, and Noel Mauro, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was a pleasure. Thank you for Thank having you so us. Oh, and, and Nicholas, if you don't mind me asking, I picked up a slight trace of a foreign accent. So if you don't mind <laughs> me asking. Yes, I'm uh, from Germany, actually. Okay, so it's when, when, when we started talking about Austria, um, and this happens to me too, less so, but I, you know, I talk about New Jersey and New York, and it <laughs> changes. So when we started talking about the Austrian villages, it's like there was something that just popped out where I was like, wait. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. Usually I can fool people for around 10 minutes and then they're like, hold on, where are you from? <laughs> Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UWPoliticalEconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you.